You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Kathy Delaney-Smith. Kathy is a recently retired American basketball coach who for 40 years led the Harvard women's basketball team. During her tenure, she led the team to over 600 wins, 11 Ivy League championships and six NCAA tournament berths. Between 1986 and 2011, every team except one won at least one conference championship. Outside of basketball, she has also received numerous awards and recognition for her services to the community and improving gender equality. In this fantastic interview, some of the key highlights for me were her belief that sports is the greatest classroom, and if you can educate the whole person, then winning is the end result. The way she manages the very fine line of having deep relationships with her athletes, but also maintaining a safe zone where respect is required. How your body language affects your thoughts, and how she uses this belief to encourage her team to, in her words, act as if. And how the great coaches are authentic and they care about their athletes as much as they care about winning. I thoroughly enjoyed this interview with Kathy, and I hope you get as much energy from it as I did. 
And just before we go to the interview, this episode is brought to you by Breakthrough Brands, a brand building agency empowering female leaders and founders to lead people, ideas, and movements with clarity and confidence. Visit BreakthroughBrands.com to learn more. And now, please enjoy our interview with Kathy Delaney-Smith. The Great Coaches Podcast. Kathy Delaney-Smith, good evening, my time. Good morning, your time, and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Well, I'm uh, honored beyond belief and humbled beyond belief because I, I think you do an, a phenomenal job with this these podcasts. So thank you. Well, you are very kind. Thank you. But I think the thanks is going to be all back to you because at the end of this interview, people are going to hear about your, how many years did you just tell me off air? 50, 53 51. years? 51. Well, it, we, we, we go with 51 because we ignore that I did it in college. So 51. Oh, and just a lazy 40 plus years at Harvard, but we will get into that. <laughs> That's all ahead of us. Something really simple to get us going, Kathy. Where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today? So I'm retired. I retired in June and um, everybody who knows me is has been worried that uh, it's not a match, retirement and me, because I loved my job. I mean, I probably spent 51 years telling everyone how much I love my job. So they think I'm just going to roll over and die retired. And I am so loving the freedom. I'm, I'm I'm writing a book, so that's and I'm so I'm attached to my alumni, which is my favorite thing in the world. And so, I have a lot of freedom to. I'm a passionate tennis player. I just watched the WNBA game this morning because I couldn't stay up late to watch it last night, and then I watched Kyrgios's tennis match. I couldn't do that if I was still coaching. I mean, these are the things retired people get to do. It's quite nice. So I'm I'm loving it. I'm not sure great coaches ever retire, but we're going to get into the alumni, we're going to get into tennis, we're going to get into the book and all of that stuff as we go along. But I'd like to start by just asking you about some of the great coaches you've had experience with. And actually, the list is very, very long. I've only picked out three names, but Katie Stone, Dawn Staley, and Nell Fortner. But there's many, many, many others, Kathy. But from your perspective, up close, watching these people work, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? I love that question, and I heard it on other podcasts that you have too. So, um, I, what I love, what I see in the Katie Stones of the world is these are the people that are in coaching for the right reasons. I think a lot of people have no idea what it's like to coach, and they think it might be easier, more easy than it actually is. But the genuine coaches, the authentic coaches, the people who care about the student athletes as much as they care about winning, and uh, or or they're not climbing the ladder. I, I've known too many coaches who you know are in a take a position to get to the next best position. That's the wrong reason for coaching. I mean, I admire, you know, division two coaches. They're amongst the best I know. I admire high school coaches. I admire youth coaches. I admire coaches that are, that can't win championships because it's, it's, it's harder to coach a losing team than it is to coach a winning team. So I think on all levels, the best coaches stay consistent in caring about their student athletes 
along with winning. And that means for me, for my level, that means caring about the kid that never gets into the game, caring about the woman that she doesn't get any game time and checking in with her and making sure she's still growing and she still feels valued in your program. Caring about the the injured athletes. It's really hard to include. It's very lonely to be injured because you're not part of the winning process. And so it's hard, even from the coach and with teammates, to include those athletes, student athletes. And I think the best coaches are successful at including them and caring about them. Kathy, has the definition of what great looks like changed over the arc of your career? I appreciate, for example, in the Ivy League, we're the only Division One league in the country that doesn't have scholarships and have a second set of rules on top of NCAA rules. I would say a lot of my peers who are not in the Ivy League look at what we do and say, wow, how do, where in the recruiting call do you say, oh, by the way, we don't have scholarships, and then you still recruit the best players. So there, so I, I look at my Ivy League peers and I think some of the best have been in the Ivy League. I, I really admire and, and the best who are at schools that have a harder time to win in the Ivy League. It might be easier for Harvard, Yale and Princeton to win than it is for Cornell, Columbia, Dartmouth. Just the optics of that. And so. Some of the best, co- Dana Dana Smith at Cornell has been there for twenty some odd years. I, I think she's a phenomenal coach. Yet she doesn't she doesn't win titles. She's not on TV, but she's a phenomenal coach because she you play against her, you aren't going to get more out of an athlete than Dana gets out of her. So that's greatness to me. And how has the approach to leadership changed on that journey? For for me, my leadership has always been relationship-based. And I was criticized early in my career for not being more Bobby Knight-like, the, you know, my way of the highway kind of management leadership. I mean, that just naturally was not me. So I was at least confident to be my authentic self. But I was criticized for that. And now there's been a big shift to vulnerability in leadership, to accountability in leadership, to relational leadership, to a term I use, which is called leadership from the bench or leadership from the locker room. I don't think leadership means you have a title attached to your name. I mean, it means a certain set of standards and you're vocal and you're strong and you're consistent in making sure those standards are in your environment. Like I say to my team, if you see, if you see something going wrong, you own it. And if you don't do anything about it, just because you're not the captain, then you're not living up to the leadership potential that you have. Kathy, you're famous for your mantra, act Mm -hmm. as if. Could you tell us about what it means to you and how you use it? Well, I'll confess right off the bat that I stole it from someone. I have no idea. I'm still scratching my head trying to figure out who I stole it from, but in, in looking in the rearview mirror, it's a, a it's a strategy I've used my whole life, even when I didn't know I was using it. And so people say, well, it's just the imposter syndrome. And no, it's not, because it's a proactive decision. It's not a reactive decision. It's more similar to fake it till you make it, but I think it's even different than that. I think it's an intention 
to create an attitude, to create an environment that has the attitudes and the qualities and the characteristics that you want to have. You have to have potential. You have to have foundation. It's not going to create miracles for you, but it will get you from point A to point B faster. Example, I've used it giving birth. I've used it battling breast cancer. I use it to enjoy a practice more. So what the concept is, if you act as if you love public speaking, which I do not, if you love public speaking, then you will actually like it better than if you didn't act as if. Or if you act like you feel well, when you don't feel well, you will get to feeling well faster. So your, 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 your behavior affects your thought. We know thoughts create, create our behavior, but we don't think that the behavior creates our thoughts. Uh, a woman named Amy Cuddy, who does a lot with body language, facial expressions, power positions, she was the one that made me think about this more. Like if you stand up straight, if your facial expression is happy, you will likely be more happier. Your behavior, your face, your body language affects your thoughts. And that's what act as if is. Now, I imagine in those first three years at Harvard, where you finished last in your conference, you would have been using a lot of this philosophy. But it was the fourth season where things turned around and you tied for first place. But I'm, I'm really curious to know, what did you put in place in those years before that eventually drove this result? So when I got the job, I understood the kind of student athlete I was going to get at Harvard. It wasn't very strong. And so I knew I was going to have the greatest minds in the world, but I didn't, I wasn't going to have the tallest or the quickest players. So my first thing I did was read every psychology book I could get my hands on. I took a meditation class with John Kabat-Zinn, who is the guru of meditation and mind. And so that's what I started with at Harvard. I mean, that's what I worked on. And not everyone drank the punch. Like you talk to some of my athletes in the early days and they, there's all kinds of jokes about what we did and all the training I tried to implement. They were my big experiment. So I, I, we did work on training the mind. That was number one. Number two, recruiting matters. So I, I, I had to make sure I could recruit players that were talented enough to win. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And then three, I think creating a culture takes a little time and three years is about how long it takes. And the culture was in place and we thought like and acted like winners. And even when we were losing, there's a story I always tell people. There was a young woman on my team my first year when I was trying to create a work hard culture because they weren't very hard workers when I first got there. There was a young woman who was first team all Ivy, my high scorer, a senior, got straight A's at Harvard, and she was just a lazy bum in practice. She just did not work hard. And so I called her into my office. I sat her down and I, I'll make up a name. I said, Michelle, that wasn't her name. I said, Michelle, you can't dog it in practice. I need you to work hard. I need that to be a culture. I need that to be contagious. And she looked me in the eye and she said, Kathy, I'm the high scorer. I get straight A's at Harvard and I've never worked hard a day in my life. Why should I start now? And honest to God, I was shocked. I mean, I was 30 years old when I was the head coach or 31. I was like, 
what do you say to that? I, I, I was like, that was really my first test. And I said, well, I think you should take that wonderful confidence elsewhere. And she, I asked her to leave the team because she wasn't going to work hard. And, and one bad apple, it only takes one person to create poison. And I needed to create a culture and she wasn't going to do it. Did you get feedback? No, she was, she was fine. I think practices were too hard for her. She didn't want to dive on the floor. She didn't want to make her running times. She, she was cruising. She was talented, but she was cruising. So I, I, I knew I had to create a culture. It's fascinating because you say, and I've got this quote, and I think it builds on this idea you've got around culture. You say, if you educate the whole person, then that enhances performance. Now, for many people listening, they want to establish closer relationships with their teams, especially given the separation we've all endured through COVID. It's enforced many of us within our communities now to have this separation. But how do you approach a conversation with someone, you know, around trying to educate the whole person when you're a sports coach? Well, I have always, always, even as a high school coach, I have always believed that sports is our greatest classroom period. And I think if I can, if I can educate the whole person, then the, the end product to that is winning. Like you can't try hard sometime. You can't be positive sometime. You have to always be that. And if you work at that, then winning can be the end result of that. And so I feel relationships comes very naturally to me. So I didn't go out and say, okay, I got a whole new batch of recruits coming in and I'm going to create a relationship. I'm terribly interested in people. I just naturally love talking with people, sitting on the bus with them, chatting with them, asking them their favorite things. I usually end up asking them a bunch of questions that are none of my business. But so our relationships happen naturally because I – there's something they see in me that knows I care so much about them, not just as a basketball player. And if I can create that safe zone in our program, then I get to rip them. I get to push them to their limits in practice. If I'm going to make practice hard, if I'm going to push them to their limits, they need to know I really care about them. And I think I've been pretty successful at doing that at Harvard. And yet, You've also in that in that story you just shared, you you have the courage to walk away from a relationship that you don't think is going to work. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was hard because she was a good player. But again, I I think our core values and the culture that I'm trying to create matters way more than winning. I mean, and I've there was a there was a practice I had getting ready for a tournament one year, and I I believe words matter. This is part of the culture. So if I, my words have to matter. So I have to back them up. But if I say something in the heat of anger, like I was so angry with our turnovers in practice, I screamed, you're going to run four lengths of the court every time you turn the ball over. Well, I think they ran 48 or 52 lengths of the court the day before a game. Not very smart, very bad strategy. However, so I was willing to lose the game the next day to make sure in the larger scheme of things that my words mattered. And 
they they ran them, and my words now matter, and we won the game. So here you go. <laughs> I'm intrigued about Harvard. I mean, everyone around the world knows the name and the brand. It's synonymous with success and high achievers. And I imagine just being accepted to go there is a wonderful achievement, let alone you know, graduating with certain marks. But with so much drive and ambition in one place, Perhaps for people listening, it might sound a little like their boardrooms or their locker rooms. <laughs> what have you learned about creating a collaborative team environment when there is this abundance of drive and ambition and energy? Yeah, I again, I my uh, my coaching has always been open door policy. Like I want, I want them to be heard. I want them to know I'm listening to them. I think they have great heads and great ideas and great thoughts. So I, I, I listen to them and I want them to have ownership. I think that it's a more powerful team when they own the team. So every year we sit down and we, the team chooses the traditions that are going to be passed down. The team chooses the punishment if you're late to a practice. So it's their team. They own it. And I think this particular, this has become way, way more important the longer I coach with this generation that we're coaching. They need ownership. They, they're very motivated. They're very talented. They're very driven, but they need ownership and they need loyalty. Like, and they're not going to have loyalty if they don't have ownership. So, you know, I think any, anybody, what organization, a team or, you know, an office, it it empowers people to give them part of the decision-making process. And I have great minds at Harvard, so who better to help me? Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Kathy, in your story, there's multiple examples of challenging authority, particularly when it comes to fairness. There's early examples about challenging school boards and, and government and community around the, the rights and the availability of opportunities for, for young girls. But I'd like to flip that around, actually, and just ask you about a time that you were challenged from someone in your team when it comes to fairness and how you responded. You are asking great questions, Paul. I I would say because of my open door uh, policy, my players, I encourage them to come to me if they're confused, if you don't know your role, if you don't understand why I didn't play you, if if instead of talking behind my back and festering and women have a tendency to hang on to things and let it fester, 
I like, let's talk about it. And so more often than not, a player will come and say, I don't understand why you didn't play me. And so we have a conversation and it's better. We're healthier. We might agree to disagree, but it's still a healthier way. I don't think any player of mine has ever accused me of mind games because I'm very open. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel about your left hand and your shooting and your defense and your box out. So, so that happens pretty frequently. I will tell you a story about one young woman who's brilliant, psychology major at Harvard, brilliant. She asked to have a meeting and she, she said, she asked me, Kathy, why do you use punishment to motivate? Why don't you use reward to motivate? I thought, and she was reading that in all, getting, she was being taught that in all of her psychology classes. And that, that was a great question. So I listened and we did try a few little shifts. We tried to reward, we tried a few little things and they didn't work. And the truth of the matter is, unfortunately, the fear of running is probably the greatest motivator. I changed my language to say, if you, don't do this, I will run you. I change it to your reward will be you will not run. (laughs) So just, and so, but that question in the late 80s altered my coaching. It, It made me think about making sure that there was the impression of reward rather than the impression of punishment. And it works. It really does. The brain is a funny thing. It works. So is fairness a theme that you're exploring in the book? Equity. Yeah, equity. I don't know if I, I've never used the word fairness because, I, I mean, I, I will often say to my players, life is not fair. Coach, I, I, I try so hard in practice. Why am I not playing? She didn't even practice the last two days. Well, I want to win and my I'm hired to win. She's a better player. It's not fair, but she's playing like you know, life isn't fair all the times. Equity. I want us all to have an, an opportunity to achieve, achieve the same things. We live in a world that's run by money. And so that seems to be the biggest determinant to what, what we do and what we don't do. But I think that if you are not revenue producing, I think Title IX is the greatest, strongest civil rights act ever and has allowed for high schools and places that are are not revenue producing where your boys team and your girls teams should be having the same budgets, the same practice times, the same opportunities. That's the equity that I, I will continue to fight for the rest of my life for. One of your enduring legacies at Harvard is the alumni. Why was setting up that alumni, nurturing it, growing it, supporting it, so important to you? Um, I didn't set out to do that. I was I wasn't really smart enough. I mean, I was a fish out of water. I mean, at Harvard when I applied for the job, I had not played college basketball. I had never worked at a college and they hired me. So I, I went on to a division one head coaching position, never being an assistant and not having a clue on this earth what I was doing. So to give me credit 
credit for developing my alumni program early. I just wasn't smart enough. But I love people. And I have always loved my athletes, even the ones that are difficult to coach. I've always loved them. And so we had an alumni game every year and they all come back and it was so fun. And the the energy and the connection that took place just continually got larger and larger. Every alumni weekend ended up being between 100 and 200 people every single year. And like they started bringing their children and we had a kid's game and like, and it was just, it sort of organically developed into what the program represents, which is like a family, a connection, a, a you know, a relationship for the rest of your life. It truly, I don't, I, I think we're, I don't think we're one of a kind, but I think we're, where I thought everybody did this, I, I now realize Harvard is pretty special, actually. It must give you a great shot of energy every year to see yeah. those familiar faces coming back. Yeah. Well, and so now they're all, well, we're not coming back because you're not there, Kathy. I'm like, you don't come back for me. Like, you come back for each other, don't? And I will, you know, if the new coach at Harvard invites me or is comfortable with me being there, I'll, I'll surely come back because I, I love, I love the school Harvard and I love the basketball program at Harvard. We talked earlier about the importance of relationships to you. And you talked about sitting next to people and being with people and it's a great trait, but many leaders talk about the challenge that comes with the closeness of the relationship and the distance required to be objective and give feedback you seem to have managed that balance very, very well. What what advice do you have for others on on getting the balance right and perhaps even not being afraid of stepping into that relationship and, and testing it out? Yeah, I think that those, that's key, what you just said, Paul. I think not being afraid and having the courage, taking a risk. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a, it's a fine line and it's gray many times. And I've had student athletes cross that line never, never intentionally. So, and if I find that a player crosses that line, I address it immediately and then we move on. And I think in doing that, I do think that everyone knows how much banter you can have with me and, and, and how much banter you can't have with me. And as, and I said, if anyone ever did it intentionally, and I can only remember one athlete in 40 years and she was asked to leave the team when she was intentionally disrespectful to me in her talk and her banter and I, she left the team. So, and that's, that's a resounding, you have to have the courage to do that because, you know, her friends on the team are shocked by that, but this, it's not three strikes and then you're out. It's one strike. If it was done intentionally, one strike, you're out. So, and again, you have to manage it. You have, and it, it takes courage and risk. You were diagnosed with, breast cancer in 1999, you, you mentioned it earlier. How did this battle go on to shape your leadership philosophy? Well, I think that breast cancer has ended up being more positive in my life than negative. Everyone gets very surprised by that, even though I, I really don't want to do it again. I would say that so many people, I think I had been coaching, let me see, 2000. I had been coaching close to 28, 25 years or something. And everyone came out of the woodwork and wrote me letters and said the most amazing things to me. I, I think they were afraid I wasn't going to make it. And so they wanted to just get these nice thoughts out. But it was very empowering to me. It was very, you know, sometimes as a coach, no one likes you. 
or someone's disappointed in you, someone's mom, someone's dad, some of my players, inevitably the feedback you get might be more negative than positive. And I, I, I'm a winning coach, so I keep thinking, oh, my gosh, if I wasn't winning, how, how would I feel about the feedback? But I got incredible, wonderful support and thoughts from all my players. And it made me step back, slow down, and it made me understand and become more aware of the impact coaches have on student-athletes. Like, I, I might not have been aware that I had this impact on these young women at a time in their life when their their education is utmost. And so I think it made me a better coach because I was more aware of that. You've maintained these very intimate relationships. You've had winning seasons, you know, year after year after year. You battled cancer. How do you go about replenishing your own energy so that you can roll up every day ready to give? I'm, I believe in being healthy as I try to teach my athletes. I think I inherited a lot of energy. I can see that I am my mother incarnate, who is an, my hero and a remarkable woman. And I take time to, uh, I sleep. I'm a good sleeper. I think sleeping is really, really important. I think exercise. And so, and I don't lift weights or do any of that because I'm really the older generation. We didn't do that. But I love tennis. I love bike riding. I love walking. I love swimming. So I think taking time to do all the things that you love, whatever they are, nice glass of wine or beer never hurt. So I think all these things, whatever it is you love in your life, I think you take take time to do them. And humor. Let's put humor to the top of the list. Like life has to be fun. My practices need to be fun. Like if I'm going to kill you and I'm going to run you and I'm going to push you so you can't breathe, it ha- we have to make sure we have fun along the way. Kathy, I read and I hear so much in press lately around the mental health challenges that coaches experience. And when your assistants come to you and they perhaps talk about the challenges they're facing emotionally, how do you work with them on that? So I think that I am not a micromanager. I think I love the people I hire who will be self-driven to get their jobs done. And so if you have to, like, so Mike Rue, who was my associate head coach my last six or seven years, he has four kids and he has to go to a teacher's meeting or he has to leave early to, I'm going to let him do all of that. I'm going to let him Make sure that his family life is as important because on the way, he's going to make the recoup phone calls. He's going to stay up till midnight if he has to to get the work done. So I don't micromanage my staff. And so I've been blessed over all of my years to have my assistants stay with me for like long periods of time. And so I I keep bragging that I'm an easy boss and everyone wants to work with me because I'm easy. But it's... It isn't that I'm easy. It's that I hire great people that are driven and I give them balance and humor. Uh, humor is, is we, we have to go out for a beer. We have to go up in the conference room and vent and tell jokes. And it's important that I get to know my staff too. So I'll have them over to dinner or I'll treat them to 
If I have an all woman staff, which I have had, we've all, we've done manicures and pedicures, like silly things, things that people like. So I work again, it's about relationships. And I, you know, I, I didn't have a mentor because I, I was either too dumb to find one or there weren't any there. I think I was too dumb to find one. So some of the greatest thing lessons I've learned came from my much younger assistant coaches, much younger. And that's because of the relationships that I established with them. And they were wise beyond their years. So it was was perfect. Well, you may not have had a mentor, but you've definitely become one now. And we have a problem in professional coaching and that these women are underrepresented. I think it was at the last Olympics, less than 20% of all coaches at the Games were, were female. What can be done to get more women into this very important leadership position? So I think that's a comp- there's going to be a that's a complicated question because I think there's a lot of variables. But again, I've I've spent my whole life trying to empower women, so it's it's making sure women have the confidence to be on podcasts, to get up and speak, go out into youth sports if you have if you're a family if you're a woman running a family it doesn't matter if your kitchen is clean it matters that you're on the soccer field even if you didn't play soccer and there's just so many women well I don't know anything about soccer well it doesn't really matter read a book go on the web and get out there because we need to see more women at that level and so one of my alumni said to me Kathy do you know how many of us coach AAU our AAU teams and our youth teams. And I said, no, she goes, all of us, we're all coaching our youth teams. And she said, do you want to know why? And I go, no, why? And she goes, cause you told us to. And so that's the empowerment that we need, but we have to start at, you know, that grassroots level. That's where we have to start. Hence my book. So the book premise is if I can do it, anyone can do it because I don't have a back. I, I, I became a physical education teacher and never had one gym class in my life, went to a physical education college and was traumatized because I didn't see lacrosse, field hockey, softball. I never played any of those, didn't belong there. So what made me think I could go there and do that? I just did. <laughs> I acted as if is what I did. So, you know, that if I can do it, we can all do it. And we just have to empower each other. Women don't empower each other or network like men do. And we got to keep on trucking. You've been very generous, Kathy. So maybe one last question. And I'd like to start by reading a quote from one of your past players, Alison Feaster. And she says, people like Kathy, women like Kathy, not only did she and others light the flame, she will leave a lot of us empowered and emboldened to continue. She definitely left the sports world and the game in a better place but also empowered a generation of women to continue the fight. Now, those are pretty amazing words in any culture from any person. But perhaps, Kathy, in your own words, what is the legacy that you hope you've left as a coach? That, that I, that I allowed the women, I, I empowered them and I allowed them not only to be free to be who they are, but feel great about it. 
I, 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 we live in a world where we're judged by our gender, our race, our height, our weight, our hair, our this or that. And I, I really tried to empower all of my women to be their authentic self because I have, I am, I have had a crazy coaching career. I am non-traditional. I was criticized for a majority of the time for just doing it my way. I, my players call me Kathy. I was warned, don't do that. They'll, they will not respect you. But I just, I did it my way. And I encourage women that there's power in being authentic. And we should all be free to be who we are. Empowered, authentic, a little bit of Frank Sinatra singing my way. <laughs> and, if, and if I could add a fair amount of energy, positive energy oh. thrown in there as well. Kathy, it's yeah. been wonderful getting to know you and spending an hour with you tonight. It's been a real, a real masterclass, a real treat for me. And I want to say thank you because it's been a very long day and you've given me a great bit of energy to attack the weekend. Okay, Paul, I admire what you do. I'm jealous of your job. And someday we'll meet and you'll give me uh, your brew from Romania. We'll do a whole beer tasting, I promise you. Okay, that sounds terrific. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to the great coach, Kathy Delaney-Smith. Kathy was a lovely guest, energizing, fun, and with a vision that goes far beyond basketball. Such a strong female role model. Some of the other key highlights for me were her focus on empowering women to have the confidence to speak up and get involved with sports with their children, even if you don't know too much about it. How her battle with cancer taught her about the impact coaches have on student athletes. How leadership means having a certain set of standards, being vocal about them and making sure they are met and wanting to leave a legacy of empowering women to be free to be who they are and to feel great about it. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Jack Snowden, who said, so much to learn as a young coach from the At Coaches Great podcasts. Thank you, Jack. At Coaches Great is our Twitter handle if you'd like to give us a follow on that platform because it's the interaction with people like Jack and our followers from all around the world who listen give us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or any comments, please let us know. All the details on how you can connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.